0: Thank you to those of you who wrote your questions and put them into the uh, sacred Kleenex question and response box. (laughs) I appreciated that. I got that. uh, I I I received the transmission of the sacred Kleenex uh, question and response box from Caroline. So I'm uh, very grateful for that. And as I was going through uh, the questions and reflecting on them. I was realizing uh, that I needed to uh, clarify something, and this might be obvious, but it just seems so important uh, to remember that when I share anything, for example, tonight or in my Dhamma talks or in the reflections, um, so much of what I offer comes not only from my own practice, which is a piece of it, but so much comes from... uh, the support I receive from friends and colleagues and my teachers and my teacher's teachers and their teachers and the entire tradition. And really, that's, that's where really it comes from. And in the places where I mislead you, that comes from me. <laughs> that comes from uh, uh, my own lack of clarity. So I just want to be clear uh, about where this comes from. And there were a lot of questions, so I I might not get to all of them, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Okay, question number one. I curse like a sailor. If the Buddha were around, I'm pretty sure he would tell me to cool it on the harsh speech speech front. But I've been doing it since like third grade, so it's fairly habitual at this point. Any tips? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So a few things about. Uh, cursing or or speaking in general, and uh, Caroline might be uh, sharing a bit more about this uh, when she speaks uh, Friday evening. One of the things I try to contact when I'm speaking is my intention, my intention about saying something. And this is going to fit in so well with some of the other responses I give, because so much of what we're doing here is just cultivating intention. It's really what we're doing. That's why I emphasize so much this simply this willingness to be present. Because there you have influence. There you can influence this willingness. And then your mind will be present or it won't. But it's that intention which is so important. And what I want to clarify uh, when I'm speaking is seeing if I can be clear about the intention within which I'm using these words. And especially around cursing, I, I think it's important around language and just in general that uh, sometimes maybe cursing is very harmful and sometimes not. There are, you know, it's important to remember there are cultures, or you could say subcultures in this country where uh, cursing is can actually be used as a way of kindness and affection. It's just a different way of using language. And I, I, it would be horrible to have a spiritual tradition that polices language or the use of language because there's something oppressive about that and i don't think it's the way the 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 buddha taught it's more about what's the intention and where i want to be careful if i find that i'm engaged in some kind of unskillful way of speaking are the places where i forget most easily And again this will come into play of what we're doing here so what I find is um, sometimes where I can be unskillful is places where I might uh, think it's not a big deal, like around friends. Because I can kind of feel like I can loosen up and and simply say whatever I want to say. But there I can really, uh, th- my unskillful patterns of speech really can come to the fore. <laughs> so again, it's it's wonderful to remember that. Before I came here, I had a, this wonderful uh, discussion. It was with a Sangha in Colorado. We were talking about the world of politics and unskillful speech. And somebody brought up really, where they have to be careful is not with people who have views that are different from them, but with people who have the same views as them. And I thought that was so insightful because sometimes when I'm with people that have the same views, I feel like it gives me more license to speak unskillfully because they're not going to be offended. But I'm still creating that intention. I'm still creating a way of speaking that's unskillful. Even if it's not going to offend the people around me, even if it's something that they may take glee in, it's something to be careful about. And also the the place that I I need to begin to practice being aware of my intention around speaking or that... that uh, The mindfulness of speaking is I want to find the places where it's easy to remember that so I can get some traction in it, where I'm around people that can support that so I get a feeling of what it feels like to be mindful while I'm speaking, rather than taking the most difficult and challenging place to be mindful when I'm speaking for the the first one. So I want to set myself up for some kind of success to get that feeling. I'm going to move on to the next couple of questions here. In the interest of of cultivating intention and effort off the cushion, as we move through our day, can you speak about cultivating momentary concentration? And I'm going to fit this in with another question. Can you speak a little about creating momentum in the beginning of a retreat especially when there's when entram- entropy seems to be the predominant mental factor so this this uh, uh, quality of uh, cultivating you could say momentary concentration or kanika samadhi for some of you uh, who were here a couple weeks ago I, I spoke a bit about this when i was speaking i gave a talk on samadhi it's this uh, it's the a minds the mind's ability to collect to correct around a a, an experience but this way collecting around a momentary experience so moment after moment collecting how do we do this off the cushion kind of the, in the in between times again it comes down to intention can I have the willingness to be present in the not only the sitting meditation and walking meditation, but especially in the in-between times. So when I'm um, opening the door to the bathroom, when I'm washing my hands, when I'm standing up, sitting down, really uh, bringing the intention, the willingness to be present with that. And I find it very helpful to really have this basis in sensation. Feeling the bodily movements of these in-between times can be so helpful. And another instruction that I found very helpful, it's an instruction I think that I know I've heard so many times on these these last few years uh, teaching the, the three-month retreat, which many teachers come back to, which is seeing if we can flip around where we're putting the importance of our retreat. If your mind's like my mind, it always feels like sitting meditation, that's where it's at. It's like, that's, that's it. And then, then walking meditation. And then, eh, in between times. Maybe your mind is like mine. And it, it can be so helpful to, to have the sense of, oh, the in-between times are the most important time. Really, the, the essence of what we're doing here. And then walking meditation. And sitting meditation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll be helpful for the in-between times. You might want to play around with that so there can be this, this different quality of your willingness. And that can help also with the momentum at the, the beginning of a retreat. I also find it helpful to be aware, and remember, I have the willingness to have a continuity in my mindfulness so the willingness is different than having continuity in my mindfulness. So if I really think that I'm going to have con- complete continuity, it, that's, it can be just a total setup for failure. It's the willingness. And then the mind will do what it wants to do. You can influence the mind, but you can't control it. So it's the, that's the emphasis. It's just the willingness. The other thing that I find helpful for the in-between times is being sensitive to the places where it seems like the mind just, it's, it's like where mindfulness completely disappears. And, and just seeing if I can um, first be aware of those, because a lot of times I notice, especially on long retreat, some kind of pattern. For example, I remember many years ago being here at the Forest Refuge and doing retreat, and it was every time I took a shower, my mind was like, shower time is party time. It is not mindfulness time. And it was just like, this is the time just like to just think about everything and just be lost in thought. And it was every single time. So that was really wonderful to see because then I could be like, oh, okay, I need to bring something different in shower time. I need to break up this party a little bit. (laughs) And that's when I would come back to labeling again that I spoke about uh, I think a couple weeks ago of really trying to label one, not only my movements, but the feeling because what it was, I don't know why it had this feeling, but it did feel like party time. Like there's something excited, like this is the time to kind of think about all kinds of things so contacting the also the feeling sense the emotional quality was really important because what i noticed is that if i was just paying attention to the movement of my body in the shower i was missing sometimes the emotional piece that i needed to contact because that's almost where the 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 party time feeling was arising from that i needed to really sense into so again it, it really comes down to intention this this willingness And then there were um, two talks, two questions around, uh, kind of around ease and relaxation. I'll read both of them. In your talk on skillful, skillful effort, you said there is an art to relaxation and ease and that now you keep these qualities at the forefront of your practice. Can you elaborate how you incorporate relaxation and ease into your retreat time in a skillful way while still remaining ardent and persistent? So how to really skillfully cultivate ease and relaxation? And maybe even better, I might take the tact of this question, (laughs) which might be tricky. If you could travel back in time and give younger Brian a single clue about how to shift the foundation of his practice away from doing, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, and toward ease, what clue would you give? And how would you trick him into following that clue (laughs) (laughs) without doing the clue? (laughs) Yeah. Um so again before i uh share about this you know my particular struggles may or may not um overlap with yours so i just but i think it's an interesting thought process so uh, uh it may or may not be helpful so so if i were to travel back in time and kind of Shift the practice more into this ease and relaxation, yeah what clue would I would I give to that Brian and I think when I uh, really uh, remember and sense into what prevented my my kind of my mind and body from really easing and relaxing, and I think there's so many different levels to this, is I think the one clue would be simply, can you deeply love yourself? That is such the big clue. because so much of my doing was so entangled in, um, you could say, trying to navigate this self-loathing or self-hatred, and the doing, some way, in some ways, was just bubbling out of that. It was like it was, it was fueling the practice in some kind of manner. And it's so difficult to have ease and relaxation is what I noticed for this younger Brian because there was so much of that quality. And it makes sense because I had to do the practice, I had to do the practice, I had to work really hard in order to try to become somebody other than me. And I think that younger Brian spent a lot of effort into trying to be somebody other than me. And I think uh, that's the trick to this path is sometimes we're confronted with this, this deep urge to become, to become somebody else. Jack Engler, who was a psychologist at Harvard, really speaks to this. Where he says, where in some days, what sometimes what happens when we come to practice is that our aspiration for awakening and how we see awakening gets distorted by this this self-loathing or, or these other wounds. In the sense of what happens is that uh, practice gets fueled by this this desire to be uh, unique and special and having a kind of invulnerability to being a human being. And that fit for that younger Brian wanting to be unique and special. And the narrative of awakening can really just really tag that one so nice and perfectly. Because when you think about someone who's awakened, sometimes we think they're the special one, the unique one. And wouldn't it be nice to be special and unique? Wouldn't it be nice to be free from the vulnerable aspect of being a human being? And I think that's the, the tricky thing uh, with awakening in this sometimes dominant culture is that it can get uh, entangled with some of these uh, unskillful impulses around this. But I think the, the embodiment of awakening is really quite different. I was speaking with a, uh, it was a few months ago, a colleague of mine who also had a Zen background and he went up to the San Francisco Zen Center and was speaking with this uh, long time practitioner in the, uh, uh, kind of in the San Francisco uh, Zen Center uh, scene, in the Soto Zen and he, he goes way back. He actually uh, practiced with uh, Suzuki Roshi for for quite a while. That was his main teacher, and and really spent a lot of time around Suzuki Roshi. And I, I want to acknowledge this, this guy was kind of a little eccentric, but very interesting. And some of my friend asked him, "So, what was Suzuki Roshi like? You know, what was it like hanging around with him?" And he paused, and he reflected, and he said. What amazed me about Suzuki Roshi is that he was the most ordinary person I have ever met. <laughs> so that kind of awakening, that, that kind of freedom. Where I shared with you some, some uh quotes by uh Liam, the abbot of what Nongbabong, the uh, Ajancha's monastery. And again, I was speaking with somebody who a number of years ago went and visited Wat, uh, Wat Nong Babong, was asking, where's the abbot? <laughs> and he said, you know, Long poor Liam, which if, if you hear about his awakening story, is really it's just so, in some ways, profound and inspiring. So he, he was he, he's the monk that you, would, you, you wouldn't even look twice at, just uh, sweeping the courtyard, a nondescript, ordinary practitioner. so the way I'd trick him into following this clue there's a few few tricks one is is um i would uh i would uh the trick is I would tell him that uh the idea that eye awakening is just a delusion it's just a, It's just a story. Because it, that's the story of being special and unique. But there's something about that we awaken, that we awaken together. And uh, the, the gateway to that, that has to be the basis of practice, and again, this is a talk I gave a few weeks ago, is this quality of bodhicitta that I practice for the benefit of all beings, including myself, but all beings. Because then, then that tricks me, it tricks me into continuing to practice. But then it's not just, just about me, it's something much better. And then when I come into the hall to practice, I'm practicing, not just for me, I'm, I'm actually practicing in order to serve. I'm just one out of the seven billion that's serving in some small way. And then I think there's a relief, you know, because for me, what begins to happen is there's, there can be something so relieving about not needing to be special and unique. Just being one of the seven billion that's adding something small, a little bit less greed, hatred, and delusion today. Or a little bit more mindfulness and kindness and compassion. Yeah, so I think that's the trick. And then on uh, a, a few other levels, I think that's why having some kind of heart practice at times while you're here is really important, whether it be the practice of compassion or loving kindness, especially towards oneself. Really so essential. Really, really important. And yeah, there's a place to kind of learn the art of ease and rela- relaxation. With that as a foundation, and sometimes I can do quite a bit of, you know, sit uh, uh, long hours and do a lot of walking and not get much sleep. And there's just a really an ease. And sometimes what I need is a little bit more spaciousness. Like sometimes really going for a walk adds spaciousness to the heart and mind, where I'm really taking in as much as I can, like the sky and. And the trees and a spacious quality can bring a kind of ease and relaxation. And sometimes I need more movement. A lot of times if uh, on a, uh, a shorter retreat, shorter retreat being a week or two weeks, sometimes I'll need to move my body um, quite a bit day to day, getting some exercise because that, for me, I've noticed allows for a quality of relaxation and ease that I just need to um, be mindful of. So, And you might have your own ways in terms of that. But those are a little bit of the, the techniquey things once uh, if, if we're continuing to explore the, the foundation of this of this deep love for ourselves okay. That's true. you know I'm, I'm really quite all right. I'm neurotic but okay. All it is. Okay. Okay, so uh, how to use sexual energy as a means to cultivating awareness skillfully? All right, I might change it a little bit. How to how to be mindful? How to how to navigate sexual energy that might arise on a retreat? So before I offer some uh, reflections on this, I do want to just name the, the, the whole huge range of, of kind of uh, one's experiences around sexual energy, where one can be on retreat and it's unbelievable the amount of sexual energy that just feels like it's coursing through the whole body in a way that can even be overwhelming to the point where uh, you can do a long retreat and really not have any of that sexual energy arise whatsoever. And this can vary even, you know, just in that big range. It can vary from day to day. It, of course, varies throughout our entire lifespan. So I just want to normalize that that huge range in terms of being a human being. Um, and uh, we might all experience, you know, the various aspects of that entire range. Yeah, some people very strong, some others not so strong. and. So a few things about it. One is, as if it does arise, I, th- I think it's... What a beautiful opportunity to have a different relationship to that. When I reflect on my life and when I've seen that energy at play, for example, when I'm attracted to someone, and how it can so color my way of relating with that person in so many unskillful ways in a ways that might feel harmless, but they're not so harmless for my especially for my own mind and sometimes for the relationship. And sometimes maybe the decisions that come out of that energy. You know, I might not be the only one in the room, maybe so. <laughs> but it's it's powerful stuff when we when we um come across that energy. So I just want to say what a cool thing to start to have a different relationship to that, because it it allows us um, uh, for many of us uh, to, of course, still be sexual beings, but to, to navigate it in a way that really can uh, be more of a vehicle for kindness and, and love rather than something unskillful or blindness. So it's, uh, it's, it's really important and, and great to, to see it as, a, as part of one's practice. And in many ways just the the same principles that we uh, bring with other experiences we bring just to this energy in the same way. The big trick what I find is when it's um, uh, quite strong is it's the this act that we try to do even around a- any kind of flavor of thinking um, or fantasizing is it's that trick of just beginning to step out of it. It's the stepping out of it so that I can start to be mindful of it. Stepping out of the lostness of it. So again, for some people, some of the lostness comes around imagery. So can you notice, oh, this is just imagery. This is the image aspect of the fantasizing. And if I can get to that of, oh, this is just imagery. And then sometimes, again, feeling body, feeling body sensation. Because that's the place where I can just feel it as energy, rather than something that's, that's, that's trying to, um, there's a kind of wanting or trying to create more of it. And noticing what that's like. And so often I think uh, the way that, that sexual energy is sometimes conceptualized, and I think so, sometimes this is really true, is that it's pleasant but sometimes I also notice that the, the energy can be so strong that it's jangly and unpleasant. So it's really quite interesting to see what is it actually like to, to set down your assumptions about what it is and to actually notice it. And it's important to do that because sometimes we bring our habitual conditioning um, around uh, sexuality into our own internal experience. Or we might note it, but we don't really want to be with it and deeply touch it. And often what this leads to is a kind of, we're willing to act out of it, but not mindfully be with it. And those are whole different realms. And I feel like most of the messages I've gotten from society, and also conditioning of identifying as a man, is is relationships to sexual energy that's more about acting out. Kind of an unskillful relationship to it, rather than really a, a, a a deep touching of it, which is so different. And then to notice what that's like, notice what the mind does with it, it. what's the attitude of the mind towards it. And then what happens next? Does it increase, does it decrease? And remembering, right? When when I, so much of what what I say to you, I'm really just giving you the cliff notes. You know what cliff notes are. Some of you might know, not know what cliff notes are. Cliff notes. You might remember this from from high school or colleges. You had to read that long novel for your English class, and you didn't read it. And but somebody gave you the cliff notes, so you could just read the 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 uh, general ideas in the novel, so you could at least pass to actually act like you read the novel, but you really didn't. In the same way, I'm just giving you the cliff notes you know, navigating this energy is is tough. It's going to be messy. You're going to get lost. You're going to come back. There's going to be layers of feeling around it, of like either, you know, the layer of shame to screw it. I'm just going to get lost in this. This is great. (laughs) And noticing all of that. But coming back, and it's, it's, I think, again, it comes down to the willingness of, I have a willingness that I want to have a different relationship to this and notice what you what you discover yeah important question Okay, so, dear Brian, could you say a bit about somatic experiencing, which I'll explain in just a minute. Particularly, any tips for those of us who have often, who often meet heightened trauma residues on retreat? So, um, a little bit. So, somatic experiencing is just one intervention out of many interventions of one way of navigating. Um, you could say accumulated stress or issues of trauma that has a particular perspective on 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 how to navigate it so any any tips from that perspective around if we if we meet traumatic material or if there 's a kind of accumulation of stress or what I would call maybe overwhelm um Yeah, so a uh, a few things in this. Maybe I should just define a little bit about overwhelm or or what could be traumatic material. And and I wanna say um this might apply to more uh more pe- uh to some people more than others. Um so just acknowledging that. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out where to begin. Yeah, the the uh, kind of a a definition of overwhelm, if we're starting to, to feel like we're overwhelmed. One way that I start to track that in my own experience is I start to see... Um, is experience getting to the place where it's overwhelming mindfulness. But not only overwhelming mindfulness, but overwhelming mindfulness in a way that I cannot... Um, uh, re-establish mindfulness in any way whatsoever. And also what comes with that is also a feeling of of this is feeling like it's getting to be too much for me. So I want to distinguish this from sometimes you might notice when you're sitting in meditation, especially when the concentration or the samadhi is stronger, and the mind is just like wandering. It's just like completely lost. And it feels like mindfulness has been overwhelmed, which in some ways it has, but the experience doesn't feel too much. It just feels like there's a real strong quality of lostness and a strong quality of being super lost, sometimes as a different feeling like, wow, this is too much. Like the strong lostness could be just like, you're just having a grand old time, you know, planning your next vacation after, <laughs> you know, after you're here at the FR, which is a little bit different than like, wow, this is really intense. And the way you, you get a sense of what I'm talking about is you start to experience that a little bit of like, wow, this feels too much. It starts to be feeling too much. So what to do with that? And, and in some ways, when, when we start to have uh, too much experiences, maybe that have some of these flavors of, that remind us of, of these parts of our lives, um, sometimes we need a little bit se- uh, different sense of a, a, a toolkit and some things to remember. So some things to remember that I find helpful on retreat. Um, one is just reminding myself of my own history. And I, th- I think I can probably, I, 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 I'm almost 99% certain that my own history in this sense overlaps with your own history, which is that all of us have this history of being mammals. We're all mammals, right? And being a mammal means there's certain ways that my physiology works. And so, what that helps is it helps normalize sometimes these experiences, especially around a strong experiences of kind of fight ex- fight response experiences of like of of anger or strong experiences of fear, which can be kind of this flight response or Uh, intense experiences of shutting down, which is this freeze response. And the reason I like to remind myself of my own history is because uh, being a mammal is a really cool thing, and those responses are a really cool thing. It's just that they're really strong right now. But the reason I'm here today and you're here today is because of those responses. Our ancestors that didn't have those responses going for them they got eaten. <laughs> They're not here. <laughs> so I just want to kind of normalize like that because then then it doesn't feel like so much of the demon. It's just like, oh, okay, this is just mammalian physiology. I just need to figure out a way to, to navigate this. Okay, cool. For me, sometimes it helps. And when I remember that I'm a mammal, a mammal on this path of awakening... Um. Uh, it brings to mind some things that I that I have to remember, and especially if if things start to get too much. And I'm not saying this is more in the realm of this doesn't always happen. This happens sometimes, rarely, in some way. But I still like to name it just to give the full range of of, of retreat experience. And that's to normalize this act of reaching out to another. The the cool thing about the forest refuge and the retreat center IMS which it's amazing that it, this isn't required at every retreat center, is this idea of retreat support. It's, I, I feel like it's the one, one retreat place I go where it's where being a mammal is normalized. It's like, wow, it's like this place gets it. Because sometimes the best thing that I need for around that is to reach out to another person. And the reason is because sometimes this accumulated stress, one of the, the acts that comes around that is isolation. So to reach out is a really good thing. It's not an act of a failure. It means that you're acknowledging that you're a mammal. Because sometimes in this society, it can feel like that reaching out means I'm weak. Reaching out, and this is how I was conditioned. This is also kind of more of a being conditioned in the kind of dominant culture and kind of as a straight male sometimes is is this kind of conditioning but reaching out can be it's like wow yeah this is what this is what mammals do especially us cuz we're like we come from this primate background that's so social also in in light of that what can be helpful and this doesn't work for everyone is um sometimes even before getting into an, uh, an overwhelming state sometimes and sometimes is a big word, is just getting a sense of what we have going on here. Sometimes practicing with others can give a sense of this sense of being supported. It's so cool to be around people with like intention. I love being in this hall knowing that that everybody's down for these five precepts. I don't live in that society that's a pretty sweet thing to be surrounded by. And it can give sometimes an ease to our system to be around other mammals like me that that are holding that and to feel that. And sometimes uh, what arises doesn't need that kind of intervention. You come to see, well, I'm not that overwhelmed, but maybe I need something different. So sometimes what the the couple principles that I come back to, and I'm just going to talk about two principles, which are really helpful. One is, is that my willingness to be present or my intention to be with whatever arises, sometimes with intense experiences, the best way to honor that is to not be with the experience. So the way I am with it is I'm not with it. So I have this intention to be with it, but the best way to fulfill that intention is not to be with it or not to be with it as much. So there's a skill in doing this, and this is really what I found, an important art I needed to find out for my practice. So what this means is that if I'm really having a tough time, again, sometimes what I, wonderful thing about here is going for a walk because of nature and allowing my mind to take in the natural world can be such a great balance of that. And especially visually taking in the world because that can be so wonderful. Or again, moving the body in in some kind of way that feels pleasant in some kind of manner. So, So it's modulating the experience in some kind of manner. You know, I I have colleagues who, who, for example, who've done the three-month retreat and uh, spent sometimes because the experience at some points in their practice was so intense they spent most of their time just walking in the woods. And I want to point out that that is skillful practice because what they're doing is they're meeting the experience as it needs to be met rather than it should look some way. It's just meeting it how it should be met. And then sometimes it's not that intense, but we need something different. And so, for example, maybe I can be with it in my sitting meditation and all I need to do is maybe there's a tightness in the body that's a bit too much for me. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll feel a part of my body where I don't feel, for example, that tightness. I might sense into my feet for a while and then I'll just feel the edge of that tightness. And then I'll go back to the feeling in my feet. Remembering, there's the cliff notes. Just the cliff notes. It's not the big old novel about this. It's just the cliff notes. That can be really helpful. And then, of course, if mindfulness is strong, as I've mentioned before, yeah, sometimes we can be with really, really intense, dark stuff and be okay. So I also want to name that. Mindfulness has a huge capacity at times where we can be with the worst of it. And then lastly, and this is really a quite a refinement, sometimes we feel these responses or these reactions, especially around this kind of this fight energy or this fleeing energy or this free freezing energy, especially around the kind of the shutting down freezing energy. Sometimes the, what makes it so difficult is these, these experiences that arise are coupled together with fear but they're different things. For example, let's say my system is beginning to feel like it's shutting down in some unskillful way. It's going numb. The big problem with that is not so much numbness, it's the fear around it. So it's just important to see, oh, oh, there's just a feeling of numbness, if you have that thing. Oh, and this is the fear. Oh, they're actually two different things. They're intertwined, but then you can start to notice that And then what you can start to do even more refinement is that sometimes you can find in these responses something sweet. The sweet thing about numbness is you don't have to feel anything. It feels so good. And I mean that if you can feel the pleasantness of it, there's a way that this can start to to navigate through our systems. Just being mindful in that way. So it's a curiosity. You're not always going to be able to find the pleasantness, but if it's there... To notice it, so it's just a w- different ways to have a, a curiosity around these things. I, I guess maybe one other thing too is um, is more for the. Extreme emergency emergency things, but I like to name them just because I, I think it's important to hear the the full range. And this fits in with uh, another aspect of the practice I was talking about, which is the importance of continuity. That is the key to the unfolding of this path is continuity, from the sitting meditation, the in-between times to the walking meditation. And it's in particular, it's the it's the willingness for continuity. this continuity and the willingness to be present. Remembering, we don't have control over that, but we can influence that. If things get to be too much, sometimes what can be helpful is to break that continuity sometimes. So sometimes reading a bit more can be helpful. So this plays both ways, is that if if you're really looking for the practice to unfold, some, really making sure to bracket your reading can be helpful if you're reading a little bit in the evening or something like that. Because the more reading you do, the less continuity there is. And of course, here at the FR, there's a place to read. I'm not trying to diss that or or discourage that. There might be a place for that. But uh, uh, it's just uh, getting a sense of how, how to uh, use the reading. Sometimes more reading can be helpful, sometimes less reading if you're looking for more continuity. Hmm. Maybe one more. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe to end with this question around uh, the difference between aspiration and longing or craving. I think yesterday, the other morning, it might've felt like I was giving you mixed messages, which is, one message is practice, just to practice, without having any idea that you're practicing for something else. And then other times I say it's so important to practice for awakening or healing or opening the heart. Um, I like giving mixed messages. <laughs> I think it's what, what Walt Whitman said. He said, "I'm." Uh, uh, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I, I contradict myself. I'm vast, I contain multitudes. And I I appreciate a, a path where I uh I don't have to make complete sense. I don't have to be non contradictory. Um so both, I think there it's really important just uh to practice, just to practice if the mind's getting caught up in quote unquote goals in a way where it feels like there's a grasping or a craving. And at the same time I think there's a, a place for aspiration. And they're different. For me, aspiration, um, the best, uh, uh, not the best, but one way of understanding it is through this Pali phrase, uh, Dhamma Chanda. Chanda sometimes being translated as zeal or desire. And Dhamma, the Dhamma, the truth. And it's so important to have this desire, this passion for the Dharma to allow my heart to be moved by that. That's what keeps me going on the path. And that's why I'm here is because of that passion. You know, whether it be a passion to, you know, again, coming back to what I was talking about, this passion to um, practice in a way that, that awakening, uh, that all beings are liberated and being deeply moved by that. I think it's The practice isn't going to unfold unless you're deeply passionate about it. It's too difficult. At least it is for me. Have you noticed that? It's not always so easy being here. I need to be passionate. But it feels different. You might notice that feels different than when I'm craving that. Where it's like, I'm so sick of all this and I really want something else. That's more the sense of aversion. How do you know that? Because they feel different. Like the image that the Vasudhi Magha gives, one of these commentaries about Chanda, which I think is a beautiful image, is it's, it's an arm reaching out. It's reaching, it's the mental reaching towards an object. And I think when Chanda is skillful, it's a reaching where the hand is still open. There's an openness, but there's a reaching. There's a fluidity to it. And when the craving, the craving I feel like there's a there's a tightness, there's a constriction, there's an entanglement that's there. The muscles are tight and constricted. And it feels different like that. Dhammachanda supports my practice and craving just makes me miserable. Yes, and may these reflections in some way uh, lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.